All right, well, if, uh, if, if there were iPhones in the first century or Samsung or whatever it is you may have, um, if there were iPhones exist in the first century Jerusalem and we were able to capture footage of the life of Jesus, we would notice something very strange. It would, it would look as if he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders. There were many things that weighed him down, including the fickleness of the crowds that seemed to just be looking for a, for a show many times. The vacillating of his disciples who wanted to rush him into political office many times. The relentless criticism of the religious leaders uh, upon his life who wanted him dead. And on top of all of that, of course, the, impending, uh, the burden of the impending death that he knew was coming upon the cross for the sins of humanity. And yet there was something that literally brought him to tears on multiple occasions. As a matter of fact, uh, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Isaiah, and in Isaiah, they speak of Jesus' coming in the future, some 700 to 750 years later. And one of the descriptions of what Jesus would be like was he was called a man of what? Sorrows. Let's try that again. So remember, this is interactive. You're good here, all right? He is called a man of sorrows, sorrows acquainted with grief, right? Good job. We're tracking. This is good. Um, and so, uh, so that's what he was known as. And that statement didn't mean that, uh, that Jesus shed a few tears occasionally because his feelings got hurt. Or that he may have been seen him whimpering a little bit, like, uh, like he was having a, a bad hair day or something, which I have quite often. That's funny. I always have to say things are funny for you guys to laugh, but that's okay. Um, I'll always remember you for this. Um, except for Austin. Austin always laughs at everything I say, which I appreciate, Austin. But listen, it, the, the passage when it says he was a man of sorrows, it was not the idea that it was brief. The idea is that the, of the language was that Jesus was relentless, incessant, and unyielding tears and sorrow his whole life. Not a moment, not a day. And so I said, if we captured foot, footage, this is what we would see. Matter of fact, there's a point in the, in the Gospels where Jesus comes to the edge of the city of Jerusalem, the city that hated him, the city that wanted to kill him, and it actually does, that says this, Luke 19, 41. He drew near. He saw the city. You know what he did? He wept over it. He shed tears over it. He shed tears. What caused such a, a dramatic response? Well, it was the hardness of the human heart, their rejection. It shook Jesus to his core. And, and while in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, give, we get great insight into the heart of Jesus in passages like this, there's a place here in the Old Testament that I believe has the greatest display of the love of God for people unlike any other place in Scripture. Yes, it is in the Minor Prophets. That's not usually where you'd go for this kind of idea, right? Doom and gloom is kind of maybe you think of. It's uh, where some of those well-intentioned Bible reading programs are put to rest a lot of times, if you get that far, right? If you get past Leviticus, you're doing good. You get to Minor Prophets, you're like done, right? It's a hard one. It's a hard one sometimes. But Jonah 4 is the most beautiful display of God's love for the world. And you say, isn't that, about, isn't that the story? Maybe you're unfamiliar with this. It's just totally cool if you're here and don't, don't know this. You probably know this part. I've worked with many people in the world, and they don't know anything about the Bible, but they always know Jonah, and they always say, hey, isn't that the guy that was swallowed by a whale? Right? That's always, the, that's always like the one story that seems to be known. Um, that is the story. This is part of that. wasn't a whale, by the way, but we don't have to get into that one. Big fish, probably, something like that. But that... And trust me, that's not the point of Jonah, okay? The point of Jonah is what we're going to see today. This is how the book culminates. And so what we find through the first, we don't have time to read the whole book, but let me just catch you up to speed on where we are here in chapter four. In love, God commissions Jonah, his prophet, 
to go to Nineveh, a foreign city. But Jonah takes the, the first boat to not Nineveh. That's how the Jesus Storybook Bible would put it. It took the first boat to not Nineveh and went the opposite direction. In love, God rescues Jonah for Nineveh after he got thrown overboard by some sailors by being swallowed up by a giant fish. In love, God has the fish then vomit Jonah out upon the beach in Nineveh, takes him there anyway. That would have been quite the sight to see. In love, God sends Jonah again to Nineveh. In love, God grants Nineveh repentance. And then in love, God relents from destroying Nineveh. And in love, God goes after the heart of Jonah. And you'll see this in the passage again and again and again. He's relentless because he loves you. <laughs> and he will continue to push. And he will continue to come after you. And what may feel like him hating you is actually him loving you, right? This is what he does. And so here's the point. He just wants you to love people. He wants Jonah to love these people like he loves them. He wants us to love people like he loves them. He wants you to love every person you see, even the person sitting next to you that you fought with on the way to church this morning. You say, how did he know? <laughs> would it be creepy if I said I had cameras in your car? No, it would, be, it would be creepy. It happens. All right, we know how this goes. You're not the only one, right? Have you encountered the love of Christ for you that changes you to love those around you, even people maybe are difficult for you? Have you encountered that? In this passage, we're gonna, we're gonna find what hinders us from loving people. And we'll see it's our pride. We're gonna discover some help for loving people that God gives to Jonah and to us, and finally hope for loving people, all right? So follow along with me. Outline's not gonna be on there, okay? I didn't give it to him in time. Um, that's my bad, but, uh, but it's okay. You can still track along here if you wanna take notes. Number one, hindrances to loving people. In his first three verses. Now we pick up the story uh, we see Nineveh here sitting in dust and ashes in repentance, even after, by the way, Jonah's really half-hearted attempt to preach the gospel. It was a terrible, it is the world's worst gospel presentation ever. He doesn't even go into the city and say, hey, turn or burn, right? That, he didn't even say that part. You say, that's not a great gospel presentation. It's not a great one, but it wasn't even that. His gospel presentation was this, burn, see ya, drop mic, I'm out. That's, that's all it was. I mean, literally, go back and read it. That's all it was. You're going to all die, period. God hates you. You're done. And, that's, was just, and they repented. I mean, it was, cra it was like a, a unheard of what happened. And so, so after this half-hearted attempt, Jonah is successful, you could say. And you would think, now, if I was writing this, okay, this is God wrote this, not me, but if, if, if I was writing this, chapter 3 ends in verse 10, I would have just put, I would think, if I was reading this for the first time, chapter three, verse 11 would read something like this. Jonah did a touchdown celebration. Through Nineveh, a giant block party, baptized thousands, rode off into the sunset on his camel with glee in his heart, and they all lived happily ever after, period. Great book, right? You're like, man, this is fantastic. That's how I think it should end, or at least the way I thought it should end. It doesn't end that way. Jonah's not... He's not a happy camper, which, as we'll talk about, is not usually the case for any campers, in my opinion, but, you know, <laughs> I have to get camping jokes in there, right, at some point. All right, look at verse one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Like, man, that is a strange response for being successful. He's a prophet, for crying out loud. This is what he's supposed to do. Jonah was still hoping... Why is he like this? He was still hoping deep inside that Nineveh would balk at his message and God would still send down the fire. But God, with his hair-trigger compassion, had mercy on them. I mean, they just took baby steps in the right direction, and God gives them more time. Again, you would think Jonah would be happy about this. He was, again, it was successful. Nineveh was the largest city of the ancient world at the time. 
I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gigantic city at the time. It says here that there's 120,000 persons doing it on the right from their left. There was even more than that when the greater actual area. It would have been equivalent today of having Oklahoma City, and did the kind of math of this one, if Oklahoma City, the entire city, came to Christ in one day. You'd be like, that, that's a pretty big deal, right? That's a, that's a, great, it's a great idea. Uh, I love that. Jonah's not happy about that. Not happy at all. He's angry. It's very angry. Matter of fact, it, 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 it burns him is actually the idea of the language. He's like, it reminds me of, uh, 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 Jonah's like Wile E. Coyote. You may date me a little bit here if you remember Wile E. Coyote, right? Who finds the fuse, does not work on the prophetic bomb that he just let off in the middle of the city, right? It's like, this thing's supposed to blow up. Why didn't it blow up? I mean, that's what he's thinking. Verse two, he prayed. He said, oh Lord, is this not what, uh, what I said when I was in my own country? Jonah's like, <laughs> he's like, this is, uh, you know, this is why I ran, right? You understand this. Now you understand why I took the boat to not Nineveh, right? This is why I didn't do that. Because I knew, and it's, almost, it's, it's actually kind of comical, I knew you'd do this kind of thing. <sighs> I knew you would. Take my life from me. I want to die because I don't want to live in the world with such a gracious, loving, and compassionate God like you. That's in essence what he says, right? Why is he so mad? At the heart of Jonah, and we see this in the, the Pharisees of the New Testament. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you run into these religious leaders, very similar to what Jonah's heart is like. He was religious at his core. He's full of pride. Pride has clogged the arteries of his heart where compassion and love should flow. He doesn't see people the way God sees them. Jonah, as a matter of fact, uses the singular pronoun I or my nine times in this chapter in the original language. You know, that probably is a good indication. What's the problem? There's a lot of I's and my's. There's some pride here, right? Pretty, pretty easy way to, to figure out the problem in this passage. Jonah's life is all about Jonah. It's all about him. Just like our lives, so much of the time are about us. You know, it's about our kids, our friends, our jobs, our yards, our cars, our grades, our stat sheets. You know, we're, we're happy to say a little prayer here or there as long as God goes along with the things in which we ask him to do, right? We're good. We're good with that. And Jonah was happy to do what God wanted him to do as long as things turned out the way Jonah wanted them to. Pretty much sums up American Christianity for the most part. It's exactly what he sees. Bottom line is that Jonah thought, he thought he was better than these Ninevites. They were inferior to him in many different ways to him. I mean, there was a, there was a racial component to this. They were, they were Gentiles or non-Jewish, so they were inferior to him. It's a big issue to them. But most importantly, what is, the, what is the case for many of us many times is that he felt they were inferior morally. They just weren't good people. And he had a truth on that. When you read about ancient Nineveh, they, they would not be categorized as good people, okay? But here's the thing that Jonah doesn't realize. He's not any better. And you're not any better. How about that for a last Sunday sermon? <laughs> you're just as bad as the ancient Ninevites. You're like, what? That's what he didn't get. You know, in his mind, they had their chances they could have made better choices. The church doors were always open for them, right? They could always come. They chose not to. And so, you know, they're just getting what they deserve here. They're reaping what they sowed, right? Or at least they should, according to Jonah. That's why he's mad. They, they should be burning right now. It's because, again, the heart of Jonah is still religious. The heart of a religious person is performance-based, and thus there is a great need to be better and outperform other people, to do better than they do on a moral basis, to achieve the kindness and grace and goodness from God that they deserve. I always say that Jonah viewed God like a, like a pinata, 
You guys know what pinata is? And I'm from California. We, pinatas were a very popular birthday, birthday celebration, right? You put the thing on the stick, and I'm just on the rope, hang it over a tree, you know, and you keep yanking on it and blindfold them. Isn't that a crazy, by the way, uh, idea to give a little kid a bat and blindfold them and tell them to start swinging? <laughs> like, that's a, I don't know who came up with that idea, but it's like, that's, that's, someone's going to get hurt, you know? It's like throwing darts when they're blind. Here, throw it, you know? It's like, no, that's not a good idea. And so, um, so it's, it's, it kind of viewed it like that. It's God is like a pinata. His rule-keeping was the stick. And he was going to keep beating God, right, with his good works until he yielded the good stuff, right? That's what his good works, his good things he did, being a good person, should yield the good stuff, right? The candy, the, the grace, the goodness from God. That's how, he, that's how he viewed it. Jonah felt these guys didn't deserve the compassion of God. He did. I mean, look at their track record and look at his. Clearly, he has earned it with all the work he put, back, he put in back at Israel, and they have not. I mean, yeah, he had that whole Jonah running away thing, but he's better now. Okay, he's better. He's back. You know, one error, nothing compared to these guys. I mean, historically, they're known for defeating their enemies, ripping their lips off and arms off, right? I mean, packing their skulls in front of their doors. I mean, it was terrible. Jonah looked at that and go like, why would you even have compassion on them, God? Why would you give them a second thought? Religious people are usually the most unhappy and really sometimes most angry people on the planet. Why? Because they see God showing grace to sinners and blessing them when they should be the only ones getting grace and blessing. Christians, unfortunately, think this way all the time. We fall into this trap. They look at people not in the family of God. They, you know, a little sigh, a little shake of the head, look down their nose at them, even though they may not say it, and their hearts are thinking they're just better than they are made better decisions with their life. But as evil as Nineveh was, Jonah was just as evil. And you say, where do you get that from, Chris? Are you just making it up? I'm not making it up at all, actually. It's right in the text. Chapter four, verse one, speaks of Jonah's evil. It's the exact same word. If you look back at chapter three, verse eight, to describe Nineveh's evil, same word. <laughs> Jonah's evil, Nineveh's evil, same word in Hebrew. He's as evil as they come. And we're as evil as they come. And I can guarantee you that if Jonah had a grenade, he'd already pulled the pin and tossed that thing right in the middle of the city. If he had it, just he lacked opportunity, right? Countless numbers of believers miss much of the joy of being involved in God's work because of their pride. Pride of their anything, right? It could be pride of your work ethic. I work harder than everybody else. Pride of their, their standing in the culture. Pride of their good works. What about us? What about you? Does pride stand in the way of being on mission? Are, are you so consumed with your maybe career that you don't even consider the lost around you? Are you blinded, right? Things that prevent you from seeing people made in the image of God. Are you so engrossed, and this can be a real struggle too, right? So engrossed in church activities that you don't even have the time to show and tell a lost world about Christ, right? Some of us don't see this, right? We'd rather sit in a room and debate the finer points of theology and church polity. Nothing wrong with that, but we'd rather do that than go take a coworker out to lunch and talk about Jesus or start a Bible study with your neighbor or find a need in someone's life. I had a conversation with a pastor a few years back, um, a local church trying to figure out some of the culture and churches around here. I was asking him a question. Um, this particular church will go unnamed, but um, I can say that I probably should have a brick with my name on their wall of their new building, but um, if you figure that one out, you can come talk to me later. Um, I contributed. Anyway, he said, uh, he said this. Here's what he said. We come from a legacy of fighting fundamentalists who find our identity in what we are against. And because we're not on mission to reach the lost, we have too much time on our hands to argue with each other and with other churches down the street. 
And since the church is on every corner, we just hop from church to church when we don't like, when we don't like something. Meanwhile, the world is going to hell. I thought that wasn't very well said. It's very true. Pride will cause you to either quit the mission or never get on it in the first place. You'll quit just like Jonah did. You say, he quit? He did. He left the city, didn't he? Look at verse five. What did he do? He walked away. <laughs> he walked away. Think, think about, I've always, I love to always tell you when you say the Bible, like, what does it not say? Or what could have it said? Think about, think about this. Could he not have stayed at anyone's home in that city? Easily, right? Would they not have welcomed him with open arms? Absolutely they would. I mean, they were all repenting about the message he gave them. And this is what the church and Christians do, right? We pack up shop, we leave those people because they don't, they don't want to be tainted by their perceived laziness, right? The moral faults that they have, whatever it may be. And then like Jonah, they become spectators and critics, right? We become spectators and critics, complaining about the culture, complaining about the city, complaining about other churches while we stand outside of it. That's our pride. Number two, hope for loving people. Help for loving people. I love that, that God just goes after Jonah, just like he does for us here. Verse four, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> now, God could have responded again as follows, could have, I would think, Jonah, you knucklehead. It's probably a nice way to put it. I should have let you drown out there in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> he didn't do that. He didn't say that. You know what he does? He asks questions. Do you notice about scripture that when people are in trouble and they're doing, not doing well, you know what God does? He asked some questions. Remember Adam and Eve? Where are you? Did he not know where they were? Did God somehow didn't know where Adam and Eve were in the garden? Of course he knew where they were. Where are you? Cain, hey, where's your brother? Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Always a question. They're not doing well. Ask him a question. That's what he does. That's what he does with Jonah here. God is always after you in a good way. And what he's doing is trying to get you to again love what he loves, to repent of the arrogance and pride that we have but we usually do just what Jonah does here, right? We ignore God, we run away, and we try to find some, somewhere to hide. Look at verse five. Jonah went out of the city, set to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there, sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So God's words here, a question that really fell on deaf ears. Jonah still doesn't respond to God's pursuit. He makes a little, a little lean-to, maybe a little tent here, does a little camping, I think. Goes on a private retreat here. He breaks out the sunglasses, puts on some sunscreen, I imagine, right? Fills, fills his little ancient igloo cooler there, maybe with some Dr. Peppers or something. Grabs some Mike and Ikes, and because we're, in, we're here in Indiana, some kettle corn or something, right? And awaits what? He awaits the big show. He awaits the big show. You're like, what, what big show is he waiting for? He is expecting God to put on a fireworks display like never before. He is expecting God to light the city on fire. And he takes God's statement of does it do you good to be angry, he twists it to mean basically, Jonah, okay, all right, I see this. Hold on, don't get angry right now. I'm still gonna take them out for you. I'm still gonna light this place on fire. You just be patient, you righteous, godly, holy man, you, right? And Jonah's like, I'm sorry, God, I can wait for you. All right, fine, I won't get, I won't get too angry. I'll be patient, I'll wait. So that's what he's doing. That's why he's sitting there. And notice, by the way, and this is that's what I love about Scripture, every, every little word and verse, everything means something here, okay? It says he goes to the east of the city. And you may read that and go like, well, why is that detail in there? Because Jonah entered in from the other side. <laughs> he, entered in from the, he entered in on the west side, according to earlier in the passage. He came in from the, into the west, and which means to go home, he would need to go back through Nineveh. Jonah's in no hurry to go home. He goes to the opposite side and sits and waits. 
Plus, to go home means he has to go through this yucky place of sinners down there in Nineveh. So he just, he's prepared to sit this one out. He's going to wait it. We do a little waiting period here. He's going to sit until God destroys the city. But rather than examining himself, he examined the city to see if they were the ones who should change. But you know what? Jonah needed to change. And here's, here's something that I think is so fascinating. Jonah, we could say Jonah needed Nineveh more than Nineveh needed Jonah. I mean, God could have sent somebody else. I mean, it totally could have done this with anybody. Just like with us, God, we're, we're, we're replaceable, okay. But Jonah, in many ways, needed Nineveh more than Nineveh needed Jonah. He needed this. God is going after him in all of this. God could have saved time and energy and just ditched Jonah for another prophet, but he didn't do that. Look at verse six. So the Lord appointed the plant, made it come up over Jonah, and it may provide shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So the little lean-to that Jonah made would have been made of branches, partly shady. Think of like a, a grapevine with no leaves on it kind of thing was what he kind of built for himself. And the heat in that area of the world would have probably been 100 plus, maybe pushing 110. And God notices the anger of his prophet, and instead of smacking him upside the head, which is what I would have done, he shows him grace, doesn't he? I mean, just one after another, he keeps showing grace and makes a plant grow to give him shade. Now, what was this supposed to do? This was supposed to bring conviction to his heart. Romans says what? God's kindness is made to bring you to what? Repentance. God's grace is meant to do that. That's what he's doing. All right, I'm gonna show you grace. Hopefully, you know, he turns around, kind of idea. God's demonstrating that he is the gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness to Nineveh and to Jonah. But instead of, uh, instead of conviction, you know what Jonah does? He gets happy. Why? He thinks God must be finally coming around. Okay, okay. Jonah literally, the, the idea of the language here is that Jonah, quote, rejoiced over the vine with a great rejoicing. My image of this is basically he did like an Irish river dance to the tune of an Ed Sheeran song. That's what I am. I don't know why that comes to my head. You'll never read this passage again the same, I'm telling you. That's what I'm at. I mean, he is celebrating. The growth of this vine Matter of fact, caused Jonah to experience an emotion, a positive emotion, unrecorded so far in Scripture, up to this point in Jonah. Unheard of. Exceed, I mean, I, there's not even a word big enough for it. Exceeding joy, how happy he is. Not just for the plant, because he, he, but it's because he thinks God's finally coming to his side. God's finally starting to grow up a little bit here, all right? He's finally starting to get what Jonah sees. He didn't, he didn't, think about this. Jonah didn't experience this kind of emotion even when he was rescued by the fish from drowning. And he surely didn't have this experience, emotion, when Nineveh repented. His happiness, my friends, is induced by a plant. <laughs> Jonah is happier in what makes him comfortable. And here's where this is going to come home for us. Jonah is happier in what makes him comfortable than actually loving those people down there in that city. Jonah would rather waste his life complaining and judging people rather than loving them and talking to them about Jesus. So here's a question. Are you more in love with your stuff, your ideas, your politics, your opinions, than you are with people? Are you more in love with what makes you comfortable than loving people? Maybe they're different from you. Do you use those things to insulate yourself from a broken world? Yeah, we do a lot of times. If you set up your little booth, like Jonah, outside the culture, content to enjoy God's grace while savoring the misfortunes of others. 
Sometimes God's prodding, questioning us by his spirit, showing us grace like he's done here, isn't enough for our hard-headedness and pride, right? We, we kind of need a, a hard lesson sometimes. And so Jonah needs more than just information transfer here, and so God basically breaks out the old felt board. That's what he does. He gives him an object lesson. Look at verse seven. So he, uh, dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm, and again, when I read this passage, I cannot help but think of Heimlich and Bug's life. That's what I think of, because this is a giant worm, right? I mean, he ate the whole plant that covered him. That's a, he's, he's hungry. Sorry, that's what I think of. Um, and so he, he appointed this, this worm, and it comes and eats the whole thing. And basically, God's like, worm, I, I, I want you to go eat that plant like a champ. Go to town on it, and he does. And so the worm consumes the plant. The sun started scorching Jonah's head, and God now literally turns up the heat both figuratively and literally on Jonah. And you know what happens to Jonah? He turns up the heat both literally and figuratively as well. This is about to get really bad. So Jesus appoints a, a scorching east wind. This was called a Sirocco back in this, in this kind of area of land. And what would happen is a hot east wind would come down from the mountains of Iran and it would blow up to 60 miles an hour. Temperatures would rise dramatically because of this heat coming in from the desert. And so we, we can see Jonah, imagine. I mean, he is ready to pass out. He's like staggering like a ship on a storm-tossed sea. He looks up to heaven. I imagine him shaking his fist at this point. He is boiling hot mad now. He was a mad before. He's really mad now. I imagine at this point, Jonah's looking for sharp rocks, right? Something's about bad to happen if he finds one. He wants to die. He said this multiple times to God. He feels God is just playing with him now, that God's cruel. But you know what? God's actually loving him. He's trying to get Jonah to wake up. He's trying to have him live for something better than himself. He's trying to get him to love people, drop his idol of comfort and repent of his pride. And God will do whatever it takes for his children to love what he loves. As I said earlier, what it may seem like God trying to kill you is actually God trying to save you. Look at verse 9. Jonah, uh, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Here it is again. There's another one of those questions, right? Do you do well to be angry for the plan? Is this helpful to you? He said, yeah, I do well. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. God sees the anger that has arisen on Jonah's face, and so God speaks to him, again, gently, compassionately. These are just, just little questions. God had every right to speak to him like the Wizard of Oz, you know, and kind of this demanding, deep voice and cause him to shudder and kind of intimidate him and maybe have him change, resulting in kind of a cowering, fearful obedience, but God doesn't want that from you. He wants a heart of joy and compassion, not fear and pride. And so again, God shows grace. And so God asks Jonah if his anger is doing him good. And Jonah ironically says, I mean, really, he's really very sarcastic. If you're very sarcastic, Jonah's your man here. This is what he is. He's super sarcastic. And basically what he says to God is something like this. You know what, my anger? It's great, God. It's good stuff. It's healthy, right? It's a new thing these days. It's a new diet. Extreme anger detoxes the body. You should try it sometime, actually. It'd be good for you. I mean, that's basically what he says to him. It might cleanse you of some of this excess love and compassion you seem to have too much of. But God's not done yet. He provides hope that things can change. He wants, he wants uh, you can have God's heart for people. Look what happens here. Number three, last point. Hope for loving people, verse 10. And so God addresses him. God now compares the plant, all right, Jonah's comfort. Imagine, insert whatever that is for you. Okay, the plant symbolizes here your comfort. Compares that to the people of Nineveh. God points to the plant, he tells, Nineveh, he tells Jonah, sorry, that he didn't do anything for this plant to come about. Didn't do anything. He didn't expend any, any thought, any labor, any toil, any sacrifice, care, planting, watering, tending, pruning. He didn't do any of that. This plant just, just magically appeared, as it were, miraculously appeared. And yet Jonah loved it. 
Remember the little dance he did? He loved it. He danced for it. And what God basically says here is that, Jonah, shouldn't I have a greater love? By the way, same word used, Jonah used for the plant. He, he grabs, God grabs that word. Hey, you know how you said how much you loved that motion, that overwhelming emotion unheard of in scripture? Shouldn't I have that same heart, that same overwhelming emotion for Nineveh? For what I created, basically, is what God says. The work of my hands, the crown of my creative acts, who are nurtured and fed and provided for by me, who will never go out of existence. Should I love them, Jonah, like that? I imagine God saying, I worked on Nineveh for years, decades, centuries. Go back and read Genesis 10. You know what city is in Genesis 10? Nineveh. It's been around a long time. A long time. God has been investing thousands of years into Nineveh, and they have taken his gifting, they have taken his image, and they've distorted it, and they've twisted it. It is, a, it is chaos in this city. Complete chaos, complete confusion. Their moral compass has been hijacked by sin, so much so that God even says, they don't know their right hand from their left. It's speaking of their moral compass, completely hijacked by sin. They, they are so lost, they are so confused and so broken. And I like to imagine God taking Jonah through the streets, kind of like, like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, right? Down through the streets and having this kind of conversation with Jonah. As he walks with Jonah, Jonah, look at them. They're broken, they're confused. They're trying desperately, passionately to find hope and life and joy in this world and they're coming up short every single day. Every night, Jonah, they go to bed with a sense of hopelessness and vanity weighing them down. They are stuck and they don't know how to get out. They don't know anything different than how they live because that's the way they've lived, the way the parents lived and their parents have lived. Look at them, Jonah. Look at them in the eyes and see the hopelessness that's written all over their faces. Jonah, don't you see them? They are so much more of value than this ridiculous plant. They're so much more valuable than the things that bring you so much comfort. I mean, that vine, that thing, it only lasted a day. Jonah, these people are going to last forever. Look at it, Jonah. Look at the city. Isn't it beautiful? This sea of humanity. Look at all the people. I love them. And I want them all to be mine. You know, you know that God sees people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He sees, if you go down to Indianapolis right now, and you see uh, on any given day, you see the buses in Indianapolis packed with people standing shoulder to shoulder. You go to Lucas Oil Stadium in a home game here, overflowing with fans who are packed into the stadium. You go to the Indy 500, and you see the 100,000 people or so teeming with fans standing shoulder to shoulder in that mass of humanity. You go on the 465 during rush hour, and you see cars jam, brake lights everywhere you look, and God says, isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> what do we say? Ah, oh, that ain't beautiful. That's too many people. <laughs> That's too much, right? It's, it's, it's annoying, it's uncomfortable, like too many people. What's wrong with us? Why don't we see that as beautiful? Why don't we think the mass of lost humanity is not beautiful? It's because we don't see the way God sees people. We obsess over what makes us comfortable we obsess over our preferences, our politics, our points of view, whatever makes us feel right. 
rather than over a lost and dying world. We'd rather not be bothered. We'd rather stay in our comfortable little bubbles of religion. We'd rather play church and invite and devour one another instead. What a wasted life. What a waste of the grace that God has shown to each and every one of us. Instead, we complain, right? That's what we love to do. We complain about the church music. We don't like that, right? We complain about the church youth group. We complain about the church name. That was always my favorite one. We tear each other apart while there is a world dying out there in need of us. We are the hope of the world. Why? Not because we're anything special, but because we have the hope of this world. Instead, we, like Jonah, we pack up our toys and we go home and we leave those people because we don't want to mess with them. We do this today. We do this today. We spend our week Right? All we do is go to church events. We talk with only Christian people. We maybe rub shoulders with unbelievers at work because we kind of have to, but, but really, truly speaking, we would care rather not to, and if we had the choice, we'd rather not work around them at all and just work around Christians if we could. And then, you know, if we have a dog that has a problem, we look for a Christian veterinarian. We have a health problem, we look for a Christian doctor. We got tooth pain, we look for a Christian dentist, right? We have Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian T-shirts, Christian music, Christian movies, Christian theme parks. We got Christian everything. We can insulate ourselves really easy. Meanwhile, the world's going to hell. But hey, at least we feel like we know our Bibles really well and we are comfortable in our little Christian ghettos. The result is a people who rarely exhibit the compassion for the world at their door. The prophetic vision of being God's people in the world dies. And the idea of abandonment to God in love and availability to God for others never even crosses our minds. Thus, the lost world, upon observing this feature, sees nothing that speaks to its own woundedness, bondage, and despair. It only sees its own sin, its own darkness and death mirrored back through an unpalatable religious veneer. That's what it sees. Let me read James Montgomery Boyce. Voice was a pastor in Philadelphia. Fantastic. Great commentaries. If you're looking for good commentaries on stuff, solid, solid guy. Here's what he said We've retreated. We've retreated from the world rather than invading the world. We have retreated to the suburbs or whatever our equivalent may be schools, churches, institutions, individuals. Many have done this. They've retreated to where it's nice or safe or non threatening. And as far as one can tell from their actions, what they're actually saying is that the world can go to hell. Shame on us. We spend millions of dollars to send faithful women and men overseas to tell the good news there, but we will not go to our cities, our neighbors, if to do so costs us comfort or prestige. Well, wow. you hit it. You say, okay, I don't feel so good right now, Chris. Um, that's okay. I feel guilty too. I'm with you. I'm not judging you on this one. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. How do I get the heart of God? And you've, if you've listened to me long enough, you know where I'm going without me having to say it. Right? You've got to see Jesus. And, I, and Jesus is all over Jonah. <laughs> the story of Jonah. Matter of fact, Jesus would actually say in Matthew 12, 41, Behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. He compared himself to him. Think about this. Jonah ran away from the city in bitterness. Didn't he? What did Jesus do? Jesus ran towards the city with boldness, Luke tells us, with his face set towards Jerusalem. Jonah looked at the city, and he got mad at their sin. Jesus looked at the city and its sin, and what did he do? He wept. 
over it. Jonah sat under a tree. He cringed at the repentance of the city, calling for justice. Jesus hung on a tree. You know what he did? He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah completed the mission. He did very reluctantly. What does Hebrews tell us Jesus did? Jesus completed the mission for the joy that was set before him. Jonah just about died on a mission that he absolutely hated. Jesus was murdered on a mission that he absolutely loved. You have to see that you too were once a part of this world system. You too were once enslaved to sin and an enemy of God. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't stay back in the comforts of heaven. Rather, he abandoned it all, took on human flesh, hung around the depths of human depravity, and he did so, why? To save you and to welcome you into his home, right? Jesus went into discomfort to bring you comfort, right? To, he gave up his preferences, and he's calling us to do the same thing. Parkside, follow Jesus into the mission field of this world. Take up your cross, as he said, and be willing to suffer and get a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. I promise you, there's no greater joy than being, than being taking some risks, getting a little bit uncomfortable, pushing yourself out there, getting to know people that don't know Jesus, loving on them, and pointing them to Jesus. We're gonna go to communion. I'm done preaching this morning, and um, I'm gonna pray for us. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, there's little cups there, right? They have juice and they have bread in it. We, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. He told us, told us to do this. Why? Because of what I just read at the end there. Because no matter where we are in the Bible, no matter where we are, as uh, old Charles Spurgeon once said, we make a beeline for the cross. <laughs> we, go, we go to Jesus. And so at this time, though you may feel some guilt, that's good, by the way, okay? It's not a bad thing. No, but not all guilt is bad. That's okay. That's why we talk about Jesus. That's why we look at him and what he did for us. And we go in, we, 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 we seek him, we go to him, we lay down our, our burdens, our, our sin and things that are heavy, and we, we find grace. And you know what we do? We're forgiven. And we walk out of this place the same as when we came in. If you're a follower of Christ, you come in with the same grace, the same uh, love that God has had for you before you came in. But now you walk out feeling that. And you look out and go, well, if Jesus was this good to me, I can be this good. If Jesus sacrificed as much for me, I can sacrifice as much for others, right? If Jesus loved me, I can love others. If Jesus is merciful and gracious to me, I, I can be merciful and gracious to others. You see? This is why you always go back to the gospel, because that's where the power is. That's where the hope is. I can sit and make you feel guilty all day long. That's, that's easy. That's, that's a piece of cake. You know, you need to pray more. You're like, yeah, you're right, right? I mean, this is easy. But getting to the gospel, that's where the power is, and that's where you'll be changed. You know what? That world out there that doesn't know Jesus, they'll, they'll feel that too. When you've been changed by the gospel and it, it, it runs your soul and heart, when you're overwhelmed by the grace you've received and you love people out of that, they feel that. Something's different. If you go out there because you feel guilty and you're like, I just gotta do this, Pastor Chris said do it, man, it was his last sermon, I better go do it, right? <laughs> they'll know that, they'll feel that, right? You've gotta be transformed by the gospel. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this opportunity to, to look at Jonah and your word. Pray, God, that you would uh, continue to bless your word here at Parkside. I have tremendous confidence in Justin and the hope and uh, the skills and the set of uh, gifts that you've given to him. I love, and I love seeing him grow and love seeing where he's at today and it feels so good right now, so good 
to be able to hand this off and know that we will continue to do the work that we have started. God, provide him hope and encouragement as we do move forward and, uh, and for this church to continue to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.